You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. The Tentacles from Below by Anthony Gilmore. Chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4 In the Cavern. That's the story, Knapp. They got Bowman, and I had to run away. Their ship disappeared into the cavern. I've got a hunch, though, that it's not just a cavern, but a tunnel leading through to some underwater world. That series of subsea earthquakes probably opened it up, and now these devil octopi are free to pour out. I've got to find out what's what, and that's why I'm going down again as soon as the torpedo system's ready. Keith and Robert Knapp were in the Falcon's chart room. On the table before them lay a broad white map with a cross mark indicating the position of the mysterious dark cavern. Wells was striding up and down like a caged tiger in his impatience to be off. Every other minute he glared down to where the NX-1 lay alongside. On her conning tower stood the tall, blond-haired figure of Graham, the first officer of the day shift, supervising the final details of the work of installing a system of jury controls whereby the submarine's torpedoes could be fired from her control room. Keith stopped short and faced Knapp. It won't be so one-sided this time, Bob, he promised. You see, when the location chart shows the enemy ship, I'll rush all men into the control room, where the paralyzing ray can't harm them. I don't know but what they have in other weapons, but I'm gambling on getting my torps in first. They've killed Bowman. They've ravaged a whole fishing fleet. They're free to emerge from their hole and maraud every ocean on the globe. They've got to be stopped. And since I'm armed and have the only submarine on the spot, I've got to do it. I know how to fight them now." Captain Robert Knapp's sense of things was badly disordered. He had just heard a story which his common sense told him couldn't be true, but which the evidence of his eyes had grimly authenticated. He had seen fifteen men slung aboard his ship from the NX-1's silent hull, men stretched in grotesque limp attitudes, men struck down by a paralyzing ray. Why, no nation on earth had developed rays for warfare. Yet a crew of helpless men was even then, in the sickbay, receiving attention in the hope that they might recover. "'You're going right through that cavern, then, Wells?' he asked, incredulously. "'You're going to investigate what lies beyond?' "'Nothing else. And I won't come out till I've blown that octopi ship to pieces.' "'It sounds preposterous,' Knapp murmured, shaking his head. "'Octopi, you say, and clad in metal suits, running a submarine more powerful than the NX-1.' armed with a ray, a paralyzing ray. I can't believe. I can't conceive. You've seen the men. Knapp, if I were you, I'd swing my eight-inchers out, bring up the plane catapult, and keep the deck torpedo tubes loaded and ready. It's best to be prepared. God knows what's going on under sea these days. First Officer Graham appeared at the door. Work finished, sir, he said, ready to cast off. "'Thank heaven,' Wells muttered, and stretched out his hand to Robert Knapp. "'Broadcast what I've told you, Bob, and say that the NX-1 won't be back till everything's under control. I'll keep in touch with you. So long.' And he was gone before the captain could even wish him good luck. Orders raced from her commander's fingers on the studboard in the control room. Crash dive filled her tanks and put her nose perilously down, so that in thirty seconds only a swirling patch of water was left to show where once she'd lain. A brief command to the helmsman, and she pointed straight for the dark cavern marked on the chart. 
When well under way, Keith descended with Graham to inspect the new torpedo firing system, and found it in good working order. Graham, he ordered tersely, instruct the crew fully about rushing to the control room on one ring of the general alarm, and send the cook up to me in a minute or so. I'll be in Spark's cubby. Above again, he instructed the radio man to rig a remote control sender and receiver in the insulated control room. The need for centering the whole crew there during engagements would crowd the room awkwardly, but at other times, while proceeding on their inspection of the cavern lair, they could remain at their regular posts. That, at least, was Wells's plan. He looked up and found the cook, McKegney, grinning at him from the door of the control room. Keith smiled, running his eyes over the portly magnificence of his gently perspiring figure. Keg, he said cheerfully, I want you to move your hot plate and culinary apparatus up here. You see, we're all likely to be crowded in here for some time, and your coffee's going to be an absolute necessity. He couldn't resist a crack at McKegney's well-known and passionate curiosity as to what made the thigamajigs of the control board work, and besides, It'll give you a chance to observe the instruments and perfect yourself for your future career as a naval officer. Much better than a correspondence course in how to be a submarine commander, eh? Cook McKegney grinned sheepishly, and left. He was well used to such jests, but he never would admit that his extraordinary interest in watching the ship's wheels go round was accompanied by a miraculous inability to comprehend why they went round. Fifteen minutes later the helmsman's cry, "'Cavern showing, sir,' swung the commander to the teleview screen. The dark, kelp-shrouded opening he knew so well was already looming on it, and he was prepared. "'Enter,' he said, while his punched studs ordered, "'Quarter speed, ready at posts, tanks in trim.' The NX-1 slackened her gait, balanced cautiously, and struck a straight, even course as she crept closer to the cleft entrance through which some two hours earlier the octopi ship had nosed. Screws turning slowly, she edged through the jagged cavern. Shades of inky blackness grew on the teleview and danced in fantastic blotches. The screen turned to a welter of black, threatening shadows, became a useless maze of ever-changing forms. Keith mouthed curses as he stared at it. Now he had nothing by which to judge his progress, to maneuver the submarine save directional instruments and perhaps chance scrapings of the tunnel's ragged walls against the outer hull. The NX-1 was running a gauntlet of immeasurable danger, her only assurance of success being the fact that a larger craft had preceded her. But how far, Keith wondered, had that ship preceded her? How was he to know that it had gone straight through? There might be a dozen different turnings in this tunnel. The submarine could easily tilt head-on against a jagged rock and puncture her hull. There might be mines planted directly in their course. He might be swimming straight into some hideous ambuscade. The passage had to be made on the fickle authority of the senses, and realizing this, Wells took the helm into his own hands. Graham was posted at the location chart, with instructions to report the red light if it showed. Down below, the Edsel electrics were humming very softly. The men stood vigilantly at posts. On their brows were little beads of sweat, and here and there a hand clenched nervously. All knew they were in a tight place. Otherwise they were ignorant of where their commander was leading them. Occasionally a long shivering rasp ran through the ship as her hull nudged the rough tunnel wall. Then the coarse rudders would swing gently over, 
and perhaps almost immediately another grinding cry of rock and steel would come from the other side then would come quickly indrawn breaths as the rudders swung again and the humming silence droned on the scrapings came quite often often too the motors would go silent altogether and the nx one would rest almost motionless as her commander felt for an opening it was a tense nerve-wringing ordeal the silence the waiting the dainty scrapings were maddening keith wells's skin was prickling he kept only fingertips on the tiny helm he was playing that uncanny sixth sense of the submarine commander when it misled him the rasping rock groaned out scarring the submarine's smooth skin generally the tunnel was straight but each time he heard his ship rub against some exterior obstruction his teeth went tight for who knew but what it might be a mine they had penetrated perhaps a half mile when graham eyes steady on the teleview reported light growing sir wells saw that the screen was filling with a soft faintly glowing bluish color the walls of the tunnel became visible and he noted that they were widening out funnel-like he dared to increase speed slightly three minutes later he saw that the blue illumination was seeping from the end of the tunnel they continued out thank god we're through he muttered to graham you see i was right it's an underground sea and we're at the top of it for the instruments indicated a depth beneath them of roughly three miles they were in evidently a large cavern of vast length and depth the nx one continued slowly forward two pairs of eyes intent on her teleview screen keith jotted down the tunnel's position and the funnel-shaped hole sank away behind their slow screws and then upon the location chart a faint red dot suddenly glowed it was upon them in a flash a small tube of metal shaped somewhat in the form of the big octopi submarine had darted up from below hovered a second close to them and then almost before they realized they were being surveyed sped back into the mysterious depths from which it had come a lookout i suppose keith muttered breathing more easily couldn't have held more than two of those creatures well the alarm's out i guess graham but it can't be helped let's see what it's like down below they plunged steadily down then ahead and presently there grew on the teleview vague forms which widened their eyes and made their breath come quicker keith had guessed the tunnel led to a civilization of some kind but he was not prepared for the sight that loomed hazily through the soft blue water strange mound-like shapes appeared far below mounds grouped in orderly rows and clusters with streets running between them thronged with tiny spidery dots octopi it was the commander realized a city of the monsters a complete city like those of surface peoples for several miles in every direction the water city spread out farther than the teleview could pierce wells marveled at this separately developed civilization this deep buried realm of octopi whose unexpected intellectual powers had permitted such development perhaps he pondered this city was only one of many perhaps only a village he could but vaguely glimpse the queer mound buildings but saw that they were of varying height and were filled with dark round entrance holes through which the creatures streamed on their different errands he saw no schools of fish around i guess they've all been killed off or eaten he commented to the wonderstruck graham probably the octopi have separate hatcheries where they raise them for food but good lord the first officer exclaimed a city a city like ours 
down here, filled with octopi. Yes, answered Wells grimly, and this city may only be a small settlement. There may be scores of these places. We'd better continue ahead now that we're here, for we've got to get all the information we can. I only hope these monsters haven't more than one big submarine. We can expect an attack any minute. The NX-1 pressed on. The city dropped behind. A breathless tenseness had settled down over the submarine. She was proceeding with utmost caution, her anxious officers alert at the location chart. The great fear that tormented them was that they might be attacked, not by one, but by a fleet of the octopi ships. Then, at the rim of the chart, a red dot appeared. It grew rapidly, charging down on them at great speed. The spot was large. This was no small sentry-boat. At once the alarm bell shrilled its warning. The crew below left their posts and raced to the control room. With sure mechanical fingers, the emergency system gripped the valve handles and motor levers. Keith swung the NX-1 onto a level keel, straightened her out, and decreased speed still more. Giving the rods of the motor and rudder controls to Graham, he moved to the small lever which would unleash his bow torpedoes, and fingered it lightly. The NX-1 was ready for action. Scarcely had the men reached the small control room than the familiar electric charge tingled. They stared wonderingly at each other, half afraid. No one seemed hurt. One hand on the torpedo lever, Wells watched his charts and instruments. He thanked God that there was only one of the enemy. The ray's shock came again, and stronger. The red dot was practically upon them. The screen was still empty. Coolly, Keith slowed the submarine to a dead stop. The crimson stud came closer. And then he saw it. It was the same fearsome hulking form, the same curving windows, dark and lifeless. The same knobs on its bow, one now leaping and pulsing with the paralyzing glow. At a distance of a few hundred feet the octopi ship swerved to a halt, dousing the NX-1 with its ray unceasingly. Again those two underwater craft, so oddly contrasted, were face to face and again the weapon that had once struck the American ship's crew down at their posts was directed full on to the NX-1. But it was harmless. It merely tingled, and did not paralyze. The control-room sheathing held it out stoutly. The men's faces showed overwhelming relief. Keith smiled grimly. Now at least he had the devils where he wanted them. Now it was his turn to strike with a, to them, terrible, mysterious weapon. They had attacked, had failed and now he could square up for Hemi and send a pair of torpedoes into that ship of hideous tentacles. Port five, the ship swerved slightly. Hold even. The enemy craft was very close. The NX-1's bow-tubes were sighted in direct line. Her torpedoes could not possibly miss. This time destruction for the octopi ship was inevitable. Keith Wells gripped the lever that held the torps in leash. Wait! Sparks, a bare foot from him, yelled out the word. Wells, alarmed, released his grip on the knob. The radio operator was listening intently, a circle of taut faces around his crouched back. He swung excitedly around. "'For God's sake, don't fire!' he cried. "'Hemingway Bowman's on that submarine. He's alive, and calling for you!' CHAPTER Five, THE OTHER WEAPON Bowman! Alive! Keith Wells let go the torpedo lever. His whole orderly plan of action was crashed in a second. 
For an instant he stood gaping at the radio man, forgetful of the peril outside, striving desperately to hit on some way of surmounting this unlooked-for obstacle. The idea of firing on his friend, killing Hemi Bowman with his own hand, paralyzed his brain. And in that unguarded instant the octopi struck. From the bow of the enemy submarine, slanting from another of its peculiar knobs, a narrow beam of violet light poured, cutting a vivid swath across the teleview. The huddled men stared at it, not comprehending what it was. They felt no shock of electricity, nor could they discern any other harmful effect. The ray held steadily on their bow, not varying in the slightest, for a full thirty seconds, and still none of them could feel or see any damage. Wells, however, gradually became aware that he was bathed in perspiration, that great streams of sweat were coursing down his face. A quick glance told him that every member of the crew was the same way, and then suddenly he was conscious of a wave of intense heat, which quickly became terrific. The control room was stifling. Before he could act, the NX-1 slipped sharply to one side. A sharp hissing sound grew at her bow, climbing steadily to a shriek. Long streamers of white steam crept along the lower deck and seeped up into the control room, and then rose the fatal sound of rushing water, water pouring into the submarine from outside. For the violet beam was a heat ray, a weapon surface civilizations had not yet developed. While the NX-1's crew had stared at it in the teleview, it had melted a hole in their bow. Immediately the submarine lost trim, and the deck tilted ominously. In the face of material danger, danger from a source he understood, the commander became cool and methodical. Then forward and break out steel collision mat, and weld it in place. Every man, you too, Sparks, and McKegney. But, but, sir, stammered Graham, do you want them to get us with their paralyzing ray? You'd rather drown? Wells flung back. Silenced, the first officer donned his sea-suit, and in thirty seconds the rest of the crew had theirs on, and were cluttering clumsily forward. Alone in the control room, Keith battled with the unbalancing flow of water, maneuvering with all his skill in a futile attempt to keep the NX-1 uneven keel. The men forward worked with great speed, spurred on by the realization that they were fighting death itself. But even as they labored, the submarine swung in ever-increasing rolls and dips. The great weight of water she had shipped slopped back and forth. Her bow went steadily down. Keith swept her forward tanks clean of water always conscious of the immobile, staring octopi submarine in the teleview, watching them, it seemed, curiously, and not driving home their advantage with additional bolts of the violet heat-ray. Despite her commander's frantic efforts, the NX-1 fluttered down remorselessly. The cavern floor rose, and sinking with them came the octopi craft, in slow mockery of a fighting plane pursuing its stricken foe to the very ground. She struck bottom with a soft thudding jar and settled on even keel. At once Wells released the helm, jumped into his own sea-suit, and stumbled down to take command. He found the steel collision mat in place, and the welding of it nearly completed. A few feathery trickles of water still seeped through on each side, but under his terse directions the pumps were soon draining it out. The weird figures of the crew in their sea-suits looked like creatures from another planet as they rapidly finished the job. All right. Up to the control room, everybody. Fast! Wells roared. 
The men stumbled aft as rapidly as they could in their cumbersome suits. Several were already on the ladder. A few feet further. But at that moment the paralyzing ray again stabbed into the ship, and Keith Wells slumped helplessly to the deck, and as he crumpled he glimpsed the grotesque falling figures of his men, and saw one come tumbling down the ladder from the control room where he had almost reached safety. Peculiar sensations, unendurable thoughts raced through the commander as he lay there limply. He knew his predicament. He wanted desperately to rise, to rush to the control room. Time and time again in those first few moments of impotence he strove mightily to pull his limbs back to life, but his greatest efforts were barren of result, save to leave him feeling still weaker. The fate that he had seen strike down Brown now enmeshed him. He was paralyzed, helpless, in the midst of his crew. After a moment all sensation left his body. His limbs might not have existed. Sensation, pain, lived only in his brain, and there it was terrible, because self-created. He found himself sprawled flat on his back, his eyes directed stiffly upward. He could not move them, but out of the corners he vaguely sensed the other figures around him, helpless, every one. And who knew if they would ever come out of the spell? Victory had gone to the octopi. Minutes that seemed like hours passed and then a well-remembered voice sounded in the radio earphones in his helmet. It was Hemi Bowman, speaking from the enemy ship. "'Keith! Keith Wells! Are you there?' the voice cried. "'Keith! What have they done to you?' And Keith, he could not answer. He could not answer that troubled voice of his friend, that voice from a friend he had thought dead. Again Bowman spoke. "'Keith! Can't you hear me? What are they doing to you?' "'Oh!' For a moment it stopped, then came once more, thick with anguish. Oh, God, what's happened? Then lower. If only there were light so I could see what they're doing. The voice tapered into silence. Keith could picture Hemi, probably bound, giving him up for dead. Then quite distinctly he heard a clank at the NX-1's bow. The submarine jerked, her bow tilted up, and with increasing speed she moved forward silently as a ghost. Keith thought he knew what that meant. The octopi ship had grasped them with another of its hawser arms, and was pulling them away. But where to? One of those mound cities? His brain was a turmoil as he tried to imagine what was before them, but all he could do was lie there and wait. The American craft was towed for perhaps ten minutes, ten ages to her commander, then coasted slowly to a pause, and with a sharp jar settled to rest. As she did so, every light in her hull went suddenly out. It had been bad enough with the lights on, but the darkness was far worse. The submarine was a tomb, as silent as one, and full of men who lived and yet were dead. Hemi Bowman's voice came no more to Wells. He was alone with his moiling doubts and fears and unanswerable questions, and he knew that every other man there was alone with them, too. As his eyes became partially accustomed to the darkness, he could distinguish vaguely the forms of the familiar mechanisms above him. A slight noise grew suddenly, and resolved itself into a prolonged scraping along the outer hull of the submarine. At intervals it paused and gave way to a series of sharp, definite taps. Keith realized what those sounds signified. The octopi were striving to find some entrance to the NX-1. This, he told himself, was the end. 
the creatures would break through, water would rush in, and every man would drown, for the face shields of their sea suits were open. The dull scrapings ran completely around the motionless submarine, punctuated with the same staccato tappings. By the movement of the sound, Wells realized the octopi were approaching the lower starboard exit port, and as they neared that port, the noise abruptly stopped. Then for some minutes silence fell. Next the commander heard what was unmistakably the exit port's water chamber being filled, and a moment later emptied again. The devilish creatures had solved the puzzle of the means of entrance. In the awful darkness the inner door of the port swung open. A slow, slithering sound came to Wells's ears. He sensed, though he could not see, the presence of alien creature. An odor struck his nostrils, that of fish. A deliberate something crawled directly across one outstretched arm, and another across his legs, and above him loomed a monstrous, complicated shadow, which after a moment slowly melted from his line of vision. Panicky, he strove again to bring his limbs back to life but still could not. Keith knew that in the darkness which their huge, unblinking eyes could penetrate, they were inspecting the NX-1's interior, examining the men stretched on its deck, feeling them with their cold, metal-scaled tentacles. Another complicated shadow crept back over the commander's line of sight, and from all around rose the slithering, shuffling tread of the octopi's many tentacles, rasping on the steel flooring. Sweat from Wells's forehead trickled down and stung his eyes as he lay in that dark agony. There seemed to be countless investigating tentacles feeling through the entire submarine. One of them, iron-hard, suddenly coiled under his armpit and lifted him lightly as a feather from the deck. Another snaked up and clicked his face-shield securely shut. Keith heard other clicks, and knew that the shields of his men were likewise being closed. The commander was held straight out from the octopus's revolting body, and as he swung, helpless, he could see that more men were grasped similarly in other mighty arms. Dangling in the shadow-filled darkness he was carried slowly to the exit port, and he heard the inner door swing open, then close again. Water streamed through the valves. It encompassed him with a feeling of lightness, a feeling of floating, as he swung at the end of the long metal-sheathed tentacles. A moment later a soft bluish glow burst on his vision, and he saw that he was outside. There was a long wait, and when the current next swung him around, he was dismayed to see that every one of the monstrous creatures near him was dangling on high two or three men of his helpless crew. The whole outfit was in the power of the devil fish. And then their captors moved forward with them on a ghastly march of triumph. But Keith Wells did not know that, crouched behind the instrument panel in the control room, shivering and sick with fear, was the plump form of Cook Angus McKegney, who had just gained it just before the paralyzing ray had struck. End of chapters 4 and 5